Welcome to LDS Perspectives Podcast, where we interview amazing LDS scholars about Mormon history, doctrine, and culture. This is Laura Harris-Hales, and I'm here today with Mark Asher-McGee to talk about producing ancient scripture, Joseph Smith's translation projects, and the development of Mormon Christianity, one of the most anticipated books to come out in the field of Latter-day Saint studies in recent years. Mark Asher-McGee is a senior historian in the Church History Department and the senior research and review editor for the Joseph Smith Papers where he also serves as a specialist in document analysis and documentary editing methodology. He holds a Ph.D. in history from Arizona State University and has trained at the Institute for the Editing of Historical Documents. He has co-edited several volumes of the Joseph Smith Papers and is also co-editor of Foundational Texts of Mormonism, Examining Major Early Sources. He's also the author of several articles on Joseph Smith and early Latter-day Saint history. Hello, Mark. Hello, Laura. I am so glad to finally have the opportunity to sit down with you and discuss the research in this wonderful volume. Mark, tell us a little bit about the origin and intent of this project. Well, that is quite a story, and it's been many years in the works. This began as the brainchild of Michael Hubbard McKay, my co-editor. He wanted to do a book on all the Joseph Smith translation projects, which I think was just a great idea. And then he started conscripting contributors and just got some great people. And when he told me about the idea and who he had on board and asked me to be a co-editor, I was really excited about it. We started serious work in 2014, six years ago, with a workshop, and Brian Hauglid was the head of the Book of Mormon Center at the Maxwell Institute at BYU, and he helped us organize a workshop to get the book started and joined us as a a third co-editor. We brought people in from all over. Uh, brought in Antes from California and different people from different places, and got together and shared preliminary versions of the chapters. We wanted to have a creative synergy, and we wanted the book to be not merely a collection of different chapters on different translation projects, but to bring these into conversation with each other. It was just a fantastic kickoff to get all these people together and talk about the different translation projects together and get the juices flowing and get the cross-fertilization of ideas. That was a really neat start. And we had a strong roster at that point with some great papers. But we didn't quite have all of the translation projects covered. And that was really kind of the idea of the book. And we didn't want to just move forward with what we had, even though we had so much good stuff. And so we actually kind of went through a second phase of conscription where we wanted to make sure we had everything covered. So, for example, we had a few chapters already on the Book of Mormon. 
But even before Joseph Smith really launches into the Book of Mormon translation, as we know it, including even the Book of Lehi, even before that, there's that episode where uh, he copies down uh, transcripts of characters from the Golden Plates and sends them with Martin Harris to be examined by these big shot scholars in the major cities of the eastern seaboard. In Joseph Smith's 1838 history, he's looking back a decade to this episode, and the way it's told there, not only were there the character transcripts, but a few of these characters had been translated. The uh, scholars were not only to look at these characters and see if they look legitimate or possibly identify what language they were from, but even to look at Joseph Smith's translation of a few of these characters to possibly verify that translation as accurate. And so here's this tiny little episode where there's a few characters that may have been translated, and we wanted the book to cover all the Joseph Smith translation projects. So we wanted a chapter on that. You're covering even when he translated just a few words. So this really is a comprehensive volume. Is there anything out there like this? There's nothing out there quite like this. This book, Producing Ancient Scripture, has individual chapters covering individual projects in great detail and really digging deep into some of the translation issues and especially surrounding the subject of study chosen for that chapter. And it's over 500 pages. So there is a lot of original contribution in this volume that really digs deep into these projects. Who is the intended audience for your book? That's a good question because in Mormon history, there's there's more than one audience, isn't there? You kind of ha you have several different audiences. We have kind of the apologetics audience. You have the Mormon History Association type people who are are interested in in uh, history. You have devotional literature uh, in Mormon history. This book in particular is intended to be something that any scholar can read. It doesn't have assumptions about Joseph Smith's truth claims. Myself and several of the other contributors to the volume have written a lot within the body of Mormon history where we can express belief in Joseph Smith's truth claims and and make assumptions about that. But this volume, we decided we wanted it to be something that any scholar from any religious background or no religious background could read it and that there wouldn't be assumptions about truth claims. I've read your interviews other places where you've described the audience as a scholarly audience, as you pretty much did right now. And having read a good portion of this book, I think that people might get the wrong idea when you say it's a scholarly work. Because when I think scholarly work, I think, oh, dense, hard to understand, talking about lofty issues. But when I read these chapters, I thought a lot of them spoke quite directly to a lot of interests I had, and they expanded my view of church history. So I would say it's not a devotional book, 
where it's trying to put forth truth claims, as you mentioned, but it's very definitely an accessible book. It's written so anybody could pick it up. Not every chapter, okay? But definitely some of them, like Richard Bushman's chapter, very easy to read. Your chapter, Amy Easton Flake and Rachel Cope's chapter. I think any member of the church would pick that up and get something out of it that would enrich their understanding of the restoration movement. Well, thank you. I'm glad to hear that because we did put a lot of work into editing each of the chapters. And we, uh, even though it really digs into sources, source material and analysis and some complex argumentation, we did want to avoid academic jargon and make it something that could be read by many people. Let's dig into the introduction of the book because it is so full of wonderful ideas and provides such a great backdrop for the chapters. You mentioned in the beginning that some of the historical context of these translation projects have been overlooked. What would be those historical details that need explanation in order for us to understand what was going on? Well, I think a prime example of that would be the chapter by Amy Easton Flake and Rachel Cope on the social production of the Book of Mormon, because we almost always focus right in with laser vision, right in on Joseph Smith himself. And of course, there's no other way to say it. Joseph Smith is the most important person involved in these translations. He's the one doing it. But it would have been impossible for him to do what he did without a lot of support from a lot of other people. In the chapter by Amy Easton Flake and Rachel Cope, they show how involved some women were in the production of the Book of Mormon in terms of housing, in terms of support, in terms of financial support, in terms of witnessing, in terms of family relations with other men who are around during the translation and serving as scribes, in terms of apparently making the yarn that is used to sew the leaves together for the manuscript of the Book of Mormon, and in many other ways. It is very important to see the communal nature of Joseph Smith's production of translations. The book covers Joseph Smith's efforts to add additional scripture to the Christian canon how did this situate his movement in opposition to the broader Protestant culture? The broader Protestant culture is the legacy of the, of the great reformers of the protest against the Catholic Church. And the way the Protestant reformers fought the power of the Catholic Church was through the turn to Scripture, through the turn to the Bible and the Sola Scriptura doctrine. More than ever before, the Bible was the foundation of Christianity for the Protestants. It is the foundation of Protestant Christianity. And to add to that canon is tantamount to heresy, and for some people it was heresy. 
we talked earlier about this not being a devotional book. It was a scholarly look at the translation process. As part of that, you limited the scope of the book to only examining the modern aspects of the Book of Mormon. What did you accomplish by this? And I guess before you answer that question, it would be good for you to define for listeners what you mean by modern aspects. Right. That's good because we don't want to be misunderstood on this point. Uh, so let me clarify that when we say modern, we don't mean not ancient. Because the Book of Mormon can be both ancient and modern. And let me explain that. The Book of Mormon is certainly modern in that the text is written in the modern English of the last half millennium. And in fact, the, the entire English language, as we think of it in terms of our current models of linguistic classification, uh, did not exist at all in Book of Mormon times. Uh, Old English begins about a century after the close of the Book of Mormon. We don't have the golden plates. Let's just do a kind of counterfactual thought experiment really quick. Suppose that we had the golden plates and a bunch of other records written in Reformed Egyptian. And we had textbooks on how to learn Reformed Egyptian. And we had college classes on Reformed Egyptian. Or even suppose there was a country where people still spoke Reformed Egyptian. And we could train missionaries to go there, and they could spend two years on the ground talking to people face-to-face -face in their homes, out on the streets every day for two years, and learn Reformed Egyptian. Well, if that were the case, and we have the Golden Plates, then there would be people who could read the Golden Plates in Reformed Egyptian, the way they were written. But we don't have that. What we have is Joseph Smith's translation of the Book of Mormon into modern English. So in that sense, if in no other sense, the Book of Mormon is modern. And everybody agrees on that, right? Now, believing Latter-day Saints believe that it's also ancient and that it comes from an ancient source. But everyone can agree on that most basic fact. The thing about language is that it's never that simple. It's not a basic fact. It goes much deeper beyond that because of the heavy cultural freight that is carried along by language. And all of these words and passages and verses and chapters that we have in English fit into the English language with all of its connotations and all of the uh, cultural ideas that it carries and sometimes even historical ideas that are carried along within the words of a language. In all those senses, the Book of Mormon is modern. Now, that doesn't mean that it's not a modern translation of an ancient source. There's another really important sense in which the Book of Mormon is modern, and that is that prophets in the Book of Mormon say that they can see into the future and that they can see our day, and they even address us directly. So the Book of Mormon is speaking to the modern age, and the Book of Mormon is modern in that sense. One of your authors said that the Book of Mormon defines time and space. Yeah. And I've heard Samuel Brown express similar ideas before. It's a really interesting book. You just don't ever know if you're in the future or the present or in ancient time as you're reading. And sometimes all those time periods mesh together in one vignette. Yeah. Jared Hickman calls the Book of Mormon a wormhole. 
I think in the introduction you said you're also looking for where you see Joseph Smith in the translations. I love how you worded it that way. He is a part of the translation. He can't do this like he's a machine and not leave an imprint on his translations. That's a very good point. You know, uh, one of his earliest revelations, the Lord says that he speaks to humankind in their language and after the manner of their weakness. Now, a lot of people have this model of translation where God puts this message or this idea into Joseph Smith's head and it kind of bounces around in his cranium a little bit and becomes a Joseph Smith idea. And then Joseph Smith articulates it in his own language and vocabulary and grammar, and it comes out that way. In this revelation from Joseph Smith, that's not the model. The model is that the revelation has already been spun when it's sent to Joseph Smith. It's already put into his language and his weakness when it's sent to him. Are you saying that's some people's model, or that's the model your authors came up with? I'm actually just talking about my reading of that revelation, and different authors in the book have different models of translation that they believe in. Okay, that's interesting. One thing that was stated in the introduction I found really intriguing, you know that each of Joseph Smith's translation projects overlapped with at least one other. I hadn't realized that before. Scholars have typically examined scriptural works in isolation. So let's look at the translation of the Bible or the book of Abraham. In this volume, authors instead look at the projects collectively in light of Joseph Smith's personal practices and experiences, his immediate environment and circumstances, his biographical background and cultural context, and the broader contours of American history. How does this enhance understanding? You're getting at one of the main purposes of the volume, which was that we not only wanted to cover all the projects, but we wanted them to, we wanted to bring them together and even to bring the contributors together and get them in conversation with one another, which is why we started with that think tank where we got face to face and shared all our ideas together. And I think that was very productive. Now, in the end, the chapters on the whole are actually quite focused on the individual translation project that they were assigned to work on. But most of the chapters do draw on, especially the later ones after the Book of Mormon, they do look back to earlier precedent projects and draw on information from those to illuminate aspects of, of uh, what they're studying currently. Um, the book's introduction also does a lot of work kind of integrating these findings from the various contributed chapters. But again, ultimately, the book is a collection of studies by different contributors with different angles of vision and interpretation. It's not an integrated, holistic study of translation, but it's a toolkit intentionally. We think of it as a toolkit for future historians to use in moving forward in more holistic studies. Joseph Smith produced both translations and revelations. And this can get confusing. How did they differ? Are they easily distinguished? Is there overlap that confuses the issue? First of all, kind of the most basic answer to that is that Joseph Smith himself differentiated between 
translations, and other revelations. There were some of his revelations that he described using the word translation, and there's others that he did not. That's at kind of the most basic level, or at least at a subjective level for Joseph Smith. But I would say that objectively, you can stand back and notice some qualitative differences between the revelations that are called translations and the other revelations that are not, that are called commandments or are called revelations. For example, uh, think of this. Have you ever considered the fact that Joseph Smith never used the gift of translation to produce translations of the words of foreign-tongued contemporaries? Okay, he only uses translation to recover ancient scripture. And you can compare that to the other revelations, which are speaking to contemporaries and are in the moment and often addressing people about immediate circumstances. So there is a difference there where the translations don't have to do uh, directly with the present. Many people argue that they do have to do with the present, and you can draw strong connections there, but they're set in the past. And because of that ancient setting, there is a different texture in the translations. The commandments and the other revelations are speaking directly in the voice of God to individuals, telling them what to do or where to move or where to serve a mission, and are really in the immediate moment, whereas the translations are not in the voice of God. They're in the voice of prophets from the past. And they're often autobiographical and narrative history and even can read like, you know, the book of books of Kings or Chronicles in the Bible. Having them in that ancient setting also gives them a different texture. One thing I would add on that is that several of the chapters dig a little bit deeper into these kinds of issues, and the book's introduction does as well. And there's one chapter in particular on the Book of Mormon, which I have to mention, it's just a terrific chapter contributed by Grant Hardy, where he compares the narrative historical posture of the Book of Mormon with the didactic posture of the Revelations. And he really digs into the experience of reading narrative history and how different that experience is from reading the other Revelations. This is a chapter that hasn't created the kind of excitement that the chapters on the JST or the Book of Abraham have, but it is fantastic. It is truly brilliant, and it uses the comparative scripture approach that Grant Hardy often uses, and it's very thoughtful and interesting. You've talked a little bit about what translations were. I want to use a quote from Richard Bushman that you had in the introduction that's speaks a little bit to the why of the translations. Richard Bushman notes that translation was not simply a mechanical operation of transmitting information. Instead, it was a means to bring ancient and modern believers together in one community. This notion leads to a breakdown in credulity for some modern readers. It's very hard for them to grasp that something was said to an ancient prophet named Isaiah for the people in his time, that still applies for our time. I'm referring to the notion that all scripture is dictated by God within specific cultures, but applies to all cultures. Would this concept, however, been more readily accepted within Joseph Smith's 19th century environment? 
in a simple sense, I think that would certainly be true because people were more devout. People believed in the Bible in a more literal fashion. They had more biblical literacy. And so these things were more concrete. And that included the future. The millennium was concrete. The end of days was concrete. Calamities of the last days were more concrete. You've distinguished between translations and revelations, but having read a few of your chapters, I think it's a little bit more muddy than one is this and the other is this. Is there a gray area? Is there some overlap? Yes, there is a gray area in between there. And I could give you some examples of that. You know, some of Joseph Smith's revelations, not the translations, but the, the revelations in the, in the voice of God speaking to the Joseph Smith and others in his moment, some of those revelations will um, go on to talk about things in the deep past of, of sacred history, like they'll talk about Adam, or they'll talk about Abraham, or John the Baptist. And then, like we've mentioned in the translations, you have ancient prophets who are foreseeing into the future, including into our day. The temporal distance between these revelations and translations is sometimes collapsed from both sides. So there is a gray area. And there's a chapter in the book that really explores this gray area. And that's the chapter on Doctrine and Covenants section 7 which is this new account of John the Beloved and the words of the Savior to him about being transfigured so that he can uh, carry on in the work of salvation. David Grua and Bill Smith wrote this chapter. They looked at the various versions of this revelation, which was uh, modified over time, you know, when a lot of the other revelations were revised. And also the headnote, kind of the framing the introductory headnote and the, and the way that this text is packaged was also changed over time. And we know it now uh, most familiarly as DNC section 7 and with that heading in the Doctrine and Covenants that we know about where it says that this is a translation. And it, it doesn't just say it's a translation, right? It says it's a translation of this record that was ascribed on parchment. So it's something material. And that this parchment had been hidden up by John, you know, which is enhancing that materiality, right? This is like an actual physical object that can be hidden somewhere. Well, those, those things were not in the original headnote. In fact, the original headnote described it as uh, a revelation and as a commandment. Is this a, one of the commandment revelations or is this a translation? There's a really uh, interesting thing going on here from a documentary perspective and, and the kind of a transmission and custodial history perspective, because this text, which is very short, is kept with and transmitted along with the other revelations. Joseph Smith doesn't put it with the Book of Mormon or with the JST, right? Instead, it goes in that pile with the revelations, and it gets copied along with the revelations, and it gets revised when all the revelations get revised. You know, there are a few changes in the Book of Mormon, but not really many significant changes. The, the text of the Book of Mormon is actually quite static in comparison with the text of the other revelations, like the kind in the Doctrine and Covenants. This text of DNC 7 was kept with the revelations and copied with the revelations and kind of treated 
like the Revelations. And so even though it comes to be called a translation, it really is kind of in this murky middle ground between the two. So that's just a really interesting chapter in the book, I think. But let me close by just saying that even though there is this gray zone, uh, there clearly is uh, a spectrum from black to white, and that there are many very clear cases of each side, even though there is a gray zone in the middle. And aren't you glad there is? Because as an editor, this book would have gone on for another thousand pages yeah. if there weren't, right? <laughs> yeah, you have to find a way to draw the boundaries around your subject. We wanted to kind of reach out into that gray area a little bit, but we didn't want to go into the black. I love the last sentence of your introduction, which establishes a wonderful framework for approaching these chapters. You indicate that by putting Joseph Smith's various translation projects in conversation with each other, we may reach, quote, a greater understanding of the human yearning to be connected or even in communion with a sacred past, unquote. How does this add nuance and depth to our study of Joseph Smith and the scriptures he produced? Well, at the most basic level, if you read any of Smith's translation texts, you're just automatically establishing a connection between yourself and the text. And for many people, it's so much more than that because these texts are so compelling. They have persuaded millions of people of their actual antiquity. And so for those who accept these translation texts as ancient history, reading them creates a much deeper connection between the reader and the sacred past, just like when Jews and Christians are reading the Old Testament. You know, here again, I would just point to Grant Hardy's chapter where he really digs into the phenomenology, the experience of reading the Book of Mormon and the way it just involves your mind in entering this story and the, and the lives of these ancient people and their worlds. Before we briefly review the chapters in the anthology, I want to ask you a couple more questions about the material in the introduction. In this fourth year of the Latter-day Saint Perspectives podcast, we are trying out a new feature called Comments and Questions for Listeners. And this is where you're kind of on the hot seat, okay? Okay. If listeners are interested in free books and gift cards and having their questions answered by scholars, then they can hear more details after the disclaimer at the end of the podcast or check out the Latter-day Saint Perspectives Facebook page. This interview's comments and questions come from a listener from Spanish Fork, Utah. Here's his question. Quote, it has become increasingly popular in academic discourse to highlight the differences in method and production of Joseph Smith's translation projects, often making Joseph Smith's notion of translation seem arbitrary. I appreciate that the editors balanced this by also highlighting what made the translations similar and set them apart from other types of revelation. The process was different and not typically what we think of as translation, but the product was typically believed to be the same, an ancient text somehow rendered into English. Aside from the miracle of it, this is consistent with what people typically think of as a translation. Too often, this fact has been downplayed, unquote. And then here's this question. As editors, you refer to the transmission of purported ancient scripture 
Do you think the use of the term translate limits the way we think and discuss what Joseph Smith was doing? Okay, well, my basic answer to that is going to be no. And the first thing I would point out is that the word translation is the word that Joseph Smith himself used to describe these scriptural productions. And in fact, I would say that rather than being a limiting term, the word translation is a very capacious term. If you look at the definitions, the the multiple definitions of the word translate in Webster's 1828 Dictionary, there's a wide variety of meaning for this word. One of the definitions is basically saying translate means to change, which is almost a wide open door of meaning. Going back to Joseph Smith himself, it's clear that he used the term in an expansive way. He called the Book of Mormon a translation, and he'd taken the reformed Egyptian script of the Golden Plates, and he'd rendered it into English script. So in a way, he's tethered to this conventional idea of language-to-language translation, right? You've got the plates, they have a language inscribed on them, it's not English. He produces a version in English. And then also in the preface, he says that he did this not because he knew the original language, but because he had a gift from God, and through this gift and power of God, he did the translation. So it's kind of a paradox. This translation is a language-to-language translation, but at the same time, this translation is not your ordinary language-to-language translation, right? Let's go beyond the Book of Mormon. Most people who have studied the Book of Mormon translation and the new translation of of the Bible have noticed these obvious differences as well as similarities, okay? And yet Joseph Smith uses the same word, translation, to describe both of these projects. Now let's go ahead to 1835, when Joseph Smith takes a Hebrew class with a a Jewish instructor, not a member of the church, a guy who teaches the Hebrew language to people in schools, and they take a class and they have their textbooks And as part of their coursework, they have various exercises. And one of their exercises is to translate the Hebrew Bible from Hebrew into English. So here we have Joseph Smith doing regular old conventional translation in the most conventional sense of the word. And he uses that word to describe himself doing this in his journal. So there you have just the straight-up idea of translation that everything's been kind of tethered to before this point. Okay, now let's kind of mix things up again, because Joseph Smith also uses the word translate to describe sacred figures from the past, like Enoch and Elijah, who undergo this bodily transfiguration and ascension. And Joseph Smith is calling that translation the same word that he's used for these language-to-language conversions. The chapter by Jared Hickman really explores this. And his argument is that Joseph Smith using the same word for these two very different kinds of changes is not accidental. And in fact, Hickman's arguing that it's all connected in this radical theology of Joseph Smith's. He almost comes dangerously close to saying that translation can mean anything and everything. And at that point, it starts to mean nothing, right? If, if, the, if the word becomes too capacious, it ironically loses 
its potency of description. But that was a daring exploration by Jared Hickman. To answer the question, it's not too limiting. It's almost too capacious. Too broad. Yes. Here's a second question. The editors indicate that the translations imply a universalist theology. They state the book speaks of many books of scripture scattered and hidden across the globe and makes the point that God speaks to all people in all ages. How does this concept reconcile with the theme of chosenness emphasized in so many of Joseph Smith's translations? Right. Here we have another paradox. I think we'll find the solution to that in the Book of Mormon. And that's that's where this passage comes from about all of these scriptural records all over the earth. I think the Book of Mormon also really develops the reconciliation of this with the chosenness of the House of Israel, because the House of Israel is so important in the Book of Mormon. It's really building on Isaiah's prophecies of the scattering and regathering of the house of Israel and the redemption of the house of Israel. And the Book of Mormon's answer is very clear, which is that anybody in the world can adopt the covenant made between God and the house of Israel, and that if they do so, they will be, as the Book of Mormon puts it, they will be numbered with the house of Israel. So in other words, in in God's eyes, they are counted as if they are Israel. There is this very strong uh, idea in the Book of Mormon of the chosenness of the house of Israel, and at the same time, the idea that anyone can join in that covenant. But going back to that part of the Book of Mormon where it talks about all the scriptural records all over the earth, that's really interesting in terms of implications there, right? Because if you have scriptural records, that means you have prophets. So there's these prophets all over the earth. And I think we get an idea of that also in the Book of Mormon with the Book of Ether, with this history of the Jaredites, because the Jaredites are not Israelites, right? They leave the old world for the new world long before Israel Jacob ever walks the earth. So they're not from the house of Israel. And uh, as Heather Hardy has argued, um, we're not even sure that the Jaredites were really Christians or that they, they knew hardly anything at all about Christ. We, there's not much evidence of that, even though the brother of Jared sees Christ. What kind of influence did that have on the next millennium of Jaredite history? We can't see very much evidence, if any, on that. There's no mention of priesthood in the Jaredite record. The only thing close to that is uh, there's one passage about the high priest of one of the evil kings. But we don't know if that's an apostasy of a true priesthood among the Jaredites. We don't have any of those hallmarks of the Christian Israelites that we find in the rest of the Book of Mormon among the Nephites, right, with priesthood. But there absolutely are prophets in the Book of Ether, and the teachings of the prophets are written down. The Book of Ether actually kind of exemplifies that idea in the Book of Mormon of other scriptural records and other prophets in the world, because God is the same. He speaks to his people in all ages. That is a strong message in the Book of Mormon. 
we're going to do something pretty ambitious and maybe foolish. <laughs> we're going to summarize each of these authors' great work in a cursory, brief, and probably frivolous manner. Producing ancient scriptures, 17 chapters fall into four thematic categories. The first is context and commencement. The first four chapters deal with one aspect of the historical setting of Joseph Smith's translation of the Book of Mormon. The first in this group is By the Gift and Power of God, translating Among the Gifts of the Spirit by Christopher James Blythe, who will also be a guest on this podcast in October, where we talked briefly about his treatment of spiritual gifts, which is the topic of this chapter. What was the status of the use of spiritual gifts within the broader Protestant culture in the 1830s? I'm going to answer that in just a little bit of long form by going back to the Old Testament, which is where Blythe actually starts his analysis. I mean, this this chapter is so fun. This is the chapter with the deep background. He goes all the way back to the Israelite prophets and talks about how, um, you know, they're they're not necessarily calling prophecy a gift at that time, but they have this special power from God where they can foresee the future and they offer these prophetic critiques with special knowledge from God. And they also sometimes perform miracles like Elijah and some healings sometimes. So they have these special powers. Okay, now you get to Paul. And Paul is the one in his letter to the Corinthians that lays out this theology of the gifts of the Spirit. From that moment on, over the course of the next two millennia of Christian history, you have these moments of people who are claiming these gifts of the Spirit. It's not a really pervasive tradition in Christian history. It's kind of on the margins. All the way down to the time of Joseph Smith, it's there. It's in the Bible, and there are some people who exercise these gifts, but it's kind of on the margins. For example, in uh, early American history, who's exercising these spiritual gifts? Well, the Shakers are, and that's an important group, but it's a marginal group, really, in the American religious landscape. And there's some other groups like the Shakers also, who are claiming these gifts of the Spirit. So, yes, it's part of Joseph's environment, but it is not mainstream. Blythe mentions that the gift of translation is somewhat an appropriation of the Pauline gifts you mentioned, the gifts of the Spirit, because Paul doesn't mention translation among the various types. How surprised would Protestants be at the inclusion of translation in the gifts of the Spirit? Right. That is a really fascinating point that Chris Blythe goes into. It's not listed among the other gifts of the Spirit, and yet it is uh, closely related to the gift of tongues and the gift of the interpretation of tongues. And Blythe's chapter, I think, does a fantastic job of showing how this idea is embedded in the Book of Mormon, especially with the stories about Mosiah and how he can interpret languages. Instead of the interpretation of spoken language, it's the interpretation of written language. And the tools that the seer uses to do this are called interpreters in the Book of Mormon, which is using that word from the Pauline spiritual gifts, right? Interpretation of tongues. 
It's not listed explicitly, and yet the Book of Mormon ties it into that theology of spiritual gifts. And Blythe argues that it does so in a way where it can provide a rationale and a legitimization for adding to the scriptural canon. Joseph Smith introduces the world to the Book of Mormon, this new book of scripture, and it comes from this gift of translation. So now how can you add to the Bible? Well, through this spiritual gift. One thing several of your authors did in the chapters that I read is they would say, okay, Joseph Smith is doing this. What does the Book of Mormon say or do that lays the foundation for his believers to accept what he's doing? I think that's something new that came out of the research that I hadn't seen before and was kind of an aha moment for me. Let's move to Jared Hickman's chapter, which you mentioned briefly before. It's called Bringing Forth the Book of Mormon Translation as the Reconfiguration of Bodies in Space and Time. You mentioned that he presents an overarching theory of translation. What does he propose? He's just one of a few authors who do that in this work. Yeah, this is another really different chapter in the book. I think of it as a as a complementary chapter because instead of tackling one of the specific translation projects, his assignment was to tackle the interconnection between language-to-language translation in general or Joseph Smith's overarching translation project and the idea of bodily transfiguration, ascension, being called translation. His chapter is very interesting and a little bit different in that he begins by looking very closely at the definition of translation in Webster's 1828 Dictionary and the different, the different meanings that it had and how they're related. And he even does an etymological study. And what, what is that? Uh, by etymological study, I mean he looks at the history of that word reaching oh, okay. back into... Uh, So just beyond the dictionary that we always refer to. Right. And he shows that in its historical roots, it's focused at the action of translation. And in the sense of Enoch being translated in the Bible, that's something that God is doing. But Hickman shows how Joseph Smith transforms this definition in a way that allows for, for us, for humankind to become involved in this experience of becoming translated. We talked a bit about your co-editor, Michael Hubbard McKay's chapter on performing the translation character transcripts and Joseph Smith's earliest translating practices. And I think this speaks mostly to our listener's question, where he explores what did translation mean in Joseph's time and how did that relate to how Joseph used the term. What kind of foundation do you think that lays for further research? I think it's really important how Mike shows that at the very beginning of the Book of Mormon translation process, broadly conceived, Joseph Smith is sending out these copies of characters to these linguistic experts in the big cities of the American East Coast. 
Even though the Book of Mormon translation is done ultimately by the gift and power of God, at the very beginning, we start with this idea of kind of ordinary translation, where you start, you know, you're, you're doing the kinds of things that scholars do. You're copying characters, you're making a transcript, you're showing it to other experts who can do linguistic comparisons or verify that something's authentic or try to identify what language it is or verify if the translation is accurate. This is all the kind of academic understanding of language-to-language translation that we're talking about here at the very beginning. I think in a way that kind of shows us that even though our understanding of translation is changing and expanding and developing with books like this. Even though this is happening and we're kind of opening our minds to the nuances of the word translation, Mike's chapter shows that at the very beginning, we're still tethered to this idea of conventional, ordinary language-to-language translation. As a reader... I was really impressed because we listened to this story of the Anthon transcript and the characters that were copied from the time we're in primary. And we have this idea of what happened and why it happened and what was going on. Little details are cemented in our head. And I think that Michael uncovered a whole bunch of more details that we've never considered before so that we can look at that episode with maybe a bit more nuance. And also, there's no like clear lesson here. <laughs> there's not, okay, this means Joseph was inspired, or, or it just shows that, you know, he was exploring this Book of Mormon and the transcript, and even that detail that he had translated a bit of it. I don't think that's something that's in our collective consciousness as members of the church. Yeah, Mike really looks at that carefully from several different angles. I think the one thing that kind of, the theme that Mike really shows there is that Joseph Smith starts out inside of this, you know, cultural and intellectual construct of what a translation can be, what it can't be. Even though he goes on to produce the Book of Mormon by the gift and power of God, uh, from the very beginning, we we have we do have this uh, idea of almost academic translation. The next chapter is one of my favorites in the volume. It was paradigm shifting, and so important to women's history. I believe I love it. Reconfiguring the archive: Women and the social production of the Book of Mormon by Amy Easton Flake and Rachel Cope. I think a lot of the members of the church will identify with the stories they highlight, the women they highlight, Lucy Harris, Emma Smith, Lucy Max Smith, and then... Mary Musselman Whitmer. And Mary Whitmer, yes. They talk about how they helped in the production of the Book of Mormon. It will change the way we look at the Book of Mormon translation. One takeaway I had that was so important was that Emma's role has always been downplayed as minimal in official histories and how we have repeated those in our community. Mm -hmm. Um, But... Blake and Cope set forth an argument 
that Emma and Joseph developed the process for translating the Book of Mormon. He would put the seer stone in the hat. He would look at it. He would read it. He would dictate it back. You know, I don't want to slaughter the whole steps of the translation process. But they actually worked it out. So maybe chronologically, she didn't spend the most amount of days helping him translate, but she spent some of the most crucial time helping him translate. Yeah, exactly. So ultimately, it turns out that Oliver Cowdery is the major scribe. But at the beginning, it's Martin Harris and Emma Smith. And that pattern of of how how this actually happens is, you know, may have been worked out by a husband and wife, Joseph and Emma Smith. That's a That was really interesting. And let me share just one other piece of the chapter to give you a taste of the kind of insights there. I think we're kind of coming to know this story of Mary Musselman Whitmer when she encounters Moroni, the angel, the messenger, and he shows her the plates. And so we think of her as as this extra witness, right? And so you've got, you know, among the three witnesses, the official three witnesses and the official eight witnesses, you've got, you know, all these Whitmers, right? So you're like, yeah, we got David Whitmer as one of the three witnesses, and then you've got Christian Whitmer and Peter Whitmer Jr. and John Whitmer. Hiram Page, the in-law, all these other Whitmers who are some of the eight witnesses. Oh, yeah. And then you know what else, too? We've also got uh, Mary Whitmer. She's kind of a footnote. She's kind of a postscript. Well, uh, Easton Flake and Cope say, hey, let's look at this chronologically. This woman sees the golden plates before any of the other guys see the golden plates. Not before Joseph Smith but before any of the three witnesses and any of the eight witnesses. And so when you turn it around like that, instead of thinking, oh, all these Whitmers saw the plates and their mom got to see him too. When you turn it around chronologically, it's like this woman got to see the plates. Oh, and then her, her kids got to see him too. I love that. I love the flip because so often women are defined in terms of the men in their lives. Let's define it the other way. Turns out that's the order that it happened in. And maybe there's some influence and causality there. Those are just a couple examples of, like you said, the paradigm-changing perspectives in that chapter. It's great. One thing I think in Latter-day Saints scholarship we've seen a lot until the last probably 20 years is that we look at sources and we say, well, were they believers or non-believers? Are these hostile or friendly sources, and then we base whether they're valid upon those type of designations. Easton Flake and Cope look at these same sources and they say, okay, we've seen this as hostile before, but let's ask different questions and look at it in a different way and see if it's valid by different parameters, which I found really helpful. Yeah. It's really interesting how they throw Lucy Harris in there along with Emma Smith and Mary Whitmer and Lucy Mack Smith. It really rounds things out. It does. We're going to go on to part two, translating the Book of Mormon. How did the chapters in this book problematize some of the traditional accountings of the Book of Mormon while offering new possibilities for understanding its production? Well, let's start with Sam Brown's chapter. Uh, this is a very important chapter in the book. And here, Brown is kind of 
taking on a narrative that has been becoming very common where, you know, Joseph Smith looks into the spectacles, the Yermanthum spectacles, or into the seer stone in the hat, and he sees the English words of the translation. And so, in a sense, he's not translating, he's just reading. He's just reading the English words that he sees, he reads them out loud, and then the scribe writes them down. I myself hold to this theory. This has gained a lot of ground in the last uh, couple decades based on the careful work of Royal Skousen, right? And what Sam Brown does in this chapter is, instead of kind of going with uh, those accounts that we have of the witnesses to the Book of Mormon translation, he digs down deep into the text of the Book of Mormon itself and looks at how translation happens in the Book of Mormon and how other scriptures are generated in the Book of Mormon through spiritual gifts. And when you do that, you come out with a model that's more visionary and visionary in an interactive way where the seer's mind is more engaged in the resulting product. So that's a very interesting chapter. Sam Brown always has interesting ways to look at the translation process. And we're going to talk to him more about his chapter in the future as well. Then we have a chapter by Ann Taves. Tell us who Ann Taves is, because some of our listeners may not have heard of that scholar before. Yeah, Ann Taves is a professor at UC Santa Barbara. And she's a religious studies professor, and she's done a lot of work in, in the last several years on cognitive psychology and exploring the intersection between psychology and religious experience. She's a great scholar and a good friend to Mormon scholars. She's done quite a bit of Mormon scholarship in the last few years. She provides a third model, right? She is comparing Joseph Smith's production to someone else who did a similar kind of thing, right? Yeah, she uh, does a comparative study by looking at Helen Schuchman when she scribed A Course in Miracles in the mid-20th century. If you're trying to find something to compare the Book of Mormon with, which is quite a rare phenomenon, but she has found something that does have some, some strong similarities. A Course in Miracles is produced by Helen Schuchman in a relatively short period of time, and it's quite a long piece of spiritual creation. So this is something that's worth looking at. She finds this interesting intersection by looking at an interview that Helen Schuchman did that wasn't published for a long time. But in this interview, the interviewer really digs into the process of what she called scribing. As this interviewer was really digging in deep about exactly how this process went on, she said that there were sometimes difficult passages where she couldn't remember exactly what it was or it was, you know, it was hard to articulate. And she said that in these moments, she would see a blackboard and would actually see the words written out on oh, the blackboard. That's fascinating. That's something that sounds a little bit like what the scribes of the Book of Mormon describe, right? That Joseph Smith is seeing words on the stone. The most concrete example that we have of that as evident in the actual manuscripts, as Royal Skousen has shown, is the spelling of personal names, right? Taves hypothesizes this amalgamation 
where perhaps for Joseph Smith, the translation actually is more fluid, more like what Helen Schuchman experienced. And then in difficult parts, like the spelling of a personal name, he had what maybe we could call the blackboard slash seerstone experience, where you actually see the word in English and the letters. And maybe that can count also for the conflicting accounts. Well, they're not really conflicting, but they they don't all say the same. So if it's an amalgamation, then that would say, okay, one time when he's with this person, he's doing it this way and this way another. Well, we have accounts from several people who are around the translation, and actually they're remarkably similar. But what really throws a wrench in things is the revelation to Oliver Cowdery, now known as DNC 9, where Cowdery's told you thought it would be easy, but you have to study it out in your mind, and then you have to ask me if it's correct, and then you have to pay attention to your feelings, whether you feel this burning sensation in your bosom or... You don't have that, and you even have this state of confusion. So right, in this revelation, you have this really cognitive, intellectual, and even emotional description of a process that goes against what all the people are around Joseph Smith are describing. Then we come to Chapter 8, Nephi's Project, The Gold Plates, as Book History by Richard Lyman Bushman, who is always a pleasure to read. I found Bishmith's chapter in Foundational Texts of Mormonism fascinating. This is a book that you edited and was released a couple years ago. Yes. Here, he expands on similar concepts as he explores what the Book of Mormon has to say about itself. I love when he says, the Book of Mormon is amazingly self-aware. Right. Of course, he's got such a gift for saying things as well. Yeah, it's a really, it's such an interesting point because, you know, there are differences with the Bible, but there's all these similarities, right? It's a book of books. It's a collection of all these different books by different prophets. And in that way, it's like the Bible. And yet the Bible is not very self-aware. The Bible is not doing the kinds of things the Book of Mormon is doing where, you know, I got this source from here and that source came from there. It's like the Bible, but it's not like the Bible, And Richard really kind of digs into that. Chapter 9 is Ancient History and Modern Commandments, the Book of Mormon, a comparison with Joseph Smith's Other Revelations by Grant Hardy, which we touched on earlier when we were talking about the introduction, where he explores the power of an ancient narrative as a religious text and compares the Book of Mormon and how it does that and the Bible. Yes, and also... Several other works of world scripture, including Asian world scripture. I mean, he he brings in everything, and it's so impressive. Part three is translating the King James Bible. Well, one thing that's kind of neat about this section is the way it covers all the translation projects, because not only does it cover the JST itself, but these other little translation projects that are in its orbit, like DNC 7 that elaborates on John chapter 21. And uh, the Apocrypha Revelation. Here, Here's the example of the chapter where something isn't translated. And then also this little section of verses on the record of John in DNC 93. 
Chapter 10, we've talked about the tearing of the beloved disciple, the textual formation of the account of John by David W. Grua and William V. Smith. And here was my takeaway. (laughs) Not that it was like great, but as I was reading about how they didn't really know what to do with this translation in the beginning. Was it a revelation? Was it a translation? We're going to put it in our book of commandments. Is it a commandment? (laughs) What are we going to say in the headnote? I thought the production of that translation not only speaks to his translation abilities and what he's doing, but also to the collaborative nature of Smith's scripture production, especially after the formation of the church. There were emendations to that translation that were done by other people. This chapter just takes us miles beyond where we had been with what we knew about this section. And these guys just dug so deep into the details of revision, of who's involved, of where it was kept, of how it was treated, and it's just a fantastic piece of scholarship. Chapter 11 is a recovered resource, the use of Adam Clark's Bible commentary in Joseph Smith's Bible translation by Thomas A. Wayment and Haley Wilson Lamont. I actually interviewed Thomas A. Wayment three years ago for the podcast. I and so listeners will probably remember that episode. What's interesting to me is that when the research came out three years ago, I think we were all a little bit surprised. Right. And we didn't really know what to do with the information. Yeah, it was and really new. It was really new, and we actually had to process it. So it was a bit shocking in the beginning, and some people took it in some directions, and other people in other directions. And That's, you, that's best illustrated by the co-authors themselves, right? Exactly. Haley Wilson Lamont has been calling it plagiarism, and Thomas A. Wayment has been looking at it more in terms of, like, selective utilization. And you have spoken on this topic, and I maybe share some of the thoughts here that you've shared in other forums about how it wasn't plagiarism. I recently spoke at the Fair Mormon Conference, and I just wanted to point out something from my perspective in working on the Joseph Smith papers, which is that all of the books that the church published had prefaces. The Book of Mormon in 1830 had a preface. The Book of Commandments had a preface. The Doctrine and Covenants had a preface. The Hymnal had a preface. Joseph Smith, he wanted to publish the New Translation of the Bible or the JST, whatever you want to call it. He wanted to publish that. Looking at the other books that the church published, I just think that the JST probably would have had a preface like all the other books did. And moreover, You know, the Bible, that is the foundation of Protestant America. That is the sacrosanct text that you cannot touch. And if Joseph Smith is going to publish a version of the Bible with the kinds of changes that are in there, he's got a lot of explaining to do, okay? I mean, everyone knows that the Bible starts with, and God said, let there be light, right? It doesn't start with Moses chapter 1. And so it just seems almost obvious to me that if the Joseph Smith translation had been published, it would have been published with a preface that would have done some explaining about what this is. Now, if you look at the other prefaces, 
to the other books published by the church, they include some things about what is the source of the content in this book that you're going to read, dear reader. And so I've been looking at those prefaces and what they say, you know, using each one as kind of a model to make a guess at what the JST preface would have said. Haley Wilson Lamont and others have been saying, if Joseph Smith used Adam Clark, it's plagiarism. Well, plagiarism means borrowing with attribution. And since the JST was never published, and we don't have a preface to look at, we don't know whether or not Joseph Smith would have included any attribution. So if you're going to call that plagiarism, that's jumping to a conclusion. Actually, I've heard that, and I've balanced that with the chapter, and it's actually helped to mediate my response to what this is, to bring it more close to Dr. Weymouth's. We have chapter 12, Lost Scripture and the Interpolations of Men, Joseph Smith's Revelation of Apocrypha by Garrett Dirk Mott. I think as a member of the church, uh, when we think about the Apocrypha, we just think of the advice given by Joseph Smith that maybe, you know, it wasn't worth translating and to just not worry about it because it's corrupted. That's the basic gist of it. Right. What does Garrett bring to the discussion of this issue? Well, you know, it's really interesting because he starts out by laying out that logic of that revelation where the Lord says, there's some things in the Apocrypha that are true, but there's some things that are false. And if Latter-day Saints have the gift of the Holy Ghost, they can distinguish between the two. And so it's not necessary for you to translate the Apocrypha. Well, that's kind of the idea with the JST itself, right? That the Bible is scripture, but there's some errors in it. And so Joseph Smith is going to go through and fix up some errors. Garrett really kind of shows how there's this tension there between the two. And again, this is really interesting, right? Because here's the translation project that Joseph Smith doesn't do. And so it's just a really interesting foil for all the other chapters in the book. And Garrett kind of digs in there and like closes the chapter by offering some possibilities for like, why was this passed up? That's really interesting that you included a chapter on non-translation. Yeah. Yeah. You've covered all your bases. Yeah. I I think it's a, a really cool chapter in terms of like, you know, kind of showing the boundaries and limits of this whole thing. Chapter 13 is Translation, Revelation, and the Hermeneutics of Theological Innovation, Joseph Smith and the Record of John by Nicholas J. Frederick. And there's that huge word that I always forget what it means, hermeneutics. He delves into how the Record of John functions as pseudepigraphal literature, which I don't think Latter-day Saints necessarily appreciate how that works in the Bible, especially in the New Testament. But understanding that maybe would help understand a little better what Joseph Smith is doing with some of these translations. So do you want to speak to that a little bit? Sure. First of all, I think a lot of people just maybe don't even know about this one. So we've got a few verses in what's now section 93 of the Doctrine and Covenants, which is this amazing revelation, perhaps the most theological revelation in the Doctrine and Covenants. When you read the revelation before and after that embedded section, the texture doesn't really change that dramatically. 
this is interesting because it may be suggesting that that's how how much heavy editing happens when translation happens. A lot of times we focus on like the survival of Hebraisms in the Book of Mormon, right? And there's a lot of compelling stuff there. But you kind of have to wonder about just how much of that survives and how much is lost in translation. Then he goes on to show how in some pseudepigraphical literature, the ancient scripture that is carrying the story along is being used in some cases to legitimize new doctrines, new principles, new ideas. And that's, we definitely have new ideas in DNC 93. And Nick is making an argument that, in fact, the record of John embedded in DNC 93 is helping to legitimize these new doctrines. Whether this record of John is ancient or not, whatever your viewpoint on that is, Nick is showing how it is connected with this presentation of new doctrine. Part four is Pure Language, the Book of Abraham, and the Kinderhook Plates. Pretty diverse, but they're actually all interrelated in a way, which is fascinating. I wish I could have found a title for this part that sounded more integrating, because it sounds like the leftovers, right? It sounds like the motley crew of scraps that was left over at the end of the volume. I wasn't going to mention that. (laughs) (laughs) Chapter 14 is Joseph Smith's Pure Language Project by David Golding, who is a phenomenal scholar who works with the church history department. Right. So he mentions that the Jaredites spurred curiosity of pure language or the Adamic language, which later bled into the creation of the Kirtland Egyptian papers and what we call the Gale. Right. And then later the Book of Abraham. So pretty important. Yeah. And in between the Book of Mormon and the uh, Egyptian language study documents, you have that curious document that's called A Sample of Pure Language. Oh, yes. And in that document, you actually have both some words from this pure language and English translations of those words. That's kind of the core of it. That's the translation project that he was commissioned to work on. And he puts it in this huge context and shows that this idea of pure language is actually running all the way through the whole thing from the very beginning with, with the Jaredite record, uh, which you know predates the Book of Mormon, and then through the Book of Moses, through the sample of pure language, and up into the Book of Abraham, and it even goes into the Kinderhook Plates, which I don't have time to lay that all out, but it runs all the way through. But the book lays it out, which is great, so you can read it at your leisure. Chapter 15 is translating an alphabet to the Book of Abraham, Joseph Smith's study of the Egyptian language, and his translation of the Book of Abraham by Brian M. Hoglid. You can just assume that anything having to do with the Book of Abraham is going to be controversial. And this yes, chapter. Yes, you can assume that. Yes, you can. <laughs> and this chapter does not disappoint. Right. Dr. Hoglid examines what you describe as the modern elements in translation. He used the Kirtland Egyptian Project, or the KEP, to prove this theory that part of what they were doing with these Egyptian papers was used in the translation in the Book of Abraham. Have I characterized that correctly? (laughs) 
Yeah, that is that is his general argument. I should say that this is one of those chapters that we needed to add because we had Matthew Gray talking about the book of Abraham, but he was talking, and we'll get right to that in a minute, but he was talking about Joseph's study of Hebrew and how that influenced the book of Abraham. And we didn't have anything on these Egyptian language study documents, which have Egyptian characters with English definitions. That looks like translation, and it's got to be something that we cover if we're going to cover everything. Brian, one of the co-editors of this volume, volunteered to take this chapter on. He starts out by just going through the timeline of everything we know about the translation of the Book of Abraham and everything we know about the production of these Egyptian language study documents. And, you know, what he shows very clearly, regardless of what you think of of what it means, uh, these are concurrent projects. Okay, now that doesn't mean they're the same project. They're not absolutely the same. We know that because they talk about them somewhat differently. But they also seem to be very related. And so he shows that. And then he goes on to show that there are textual relations between the two. And again, whatever you make of this, there is some content in the book of Abraham that matches or very closely matches some content in the Egyptian language study papers. Now the question is, you know, what's the direction of causality there? And that's the final part of Brian's chapter, where he argues that Joseph Smith is uh, drawing at least in in a few parts on the Egyptian language study documents for content in the Book of Abraham. Brian presents uh, these findings in a very tentative manner. It's not at all like a lot of the heavily politicized stuff that you see in apologetics or in ex-Mormon or anti-Mormon. Nothing like that at all. Okay. But yeah, that's his chapter. Things to think about. Yes. And and I love how you put, you know, he's saying these are at the same time. What that means, we don't know yet. We can't say. Yeah. His conclusion section, I believe, is entitled Preliminary Conclusions. There you go. Chapter 16 we mentioned earlier, is approaching Egyptian papyri through biblical language, Joseph Smith's use of Hebrew in his translation of the Book of Abraham by Matthew J. Gray, who we interviewed also three years ago when he first wrote this chapter for you. It's a fascinating chapter. Historically, it's a fun part of Latter-day Saint history. I would have been in that classroom, if at all possible. Matthew Gray told me there was at least one woman who sat at the back of the Hebrew school class. And uh, I think that's phenomenal, just what they were doing with the School of the Prophets, and that Dr. Gray could dig into that history and find that as Joseph was learning the Hebrew by their Hebrew instructor, Joshua Satius, He would take what he learned there and use it in his translation of the Book of Abraham. Matthew Gray just does a phenomenal job of showing this. You know, this is something that we've kind of understood for decades. You know, there was the old Lewis Zucker article in Dialogue. There's the old Michael Walton article in Sunstone where they talked about how there are some Hebrew words in the book of Abraham. So we've kind of known that, 
But neither of those articles or any others have really tackled this in, in a comprehensive and scholarly fashion. This is no secret, it's no surprise, right? We, if, you, if you read in some of the explanations for the facsimiles, Joseph Smith will say, you know, this is the Egyptian word that corresponds to this Hebrew word. Gray shows, you know, exactly where these words are coming from in Joseph Smith's textbooks, how they're defined there, uh, how they're used there. He talks about um, how the creation account at the end of the Book of Abraham is utilizing definitions from textbooks. Gray just nails down everything in a systematic fashion, and he documents it using Joseph Smith's own Hebrew textbooks. So he just nails it. Irrefutable, in my (laughs) humble opinion. So chapter 17, last chapter in the book, President Joseph has translated a portion, Joseph Smith and the Mistranslation of the Kinderhook Place by Don Bradley and Mark Ashurst McGee. And we're going to talk about this chapter in detail in a future interview. But this chapter is different than the rest, just like Garrett Dirkmott's chapter is different. Garrett's was about no translation, and yours is about the wrong translation. Yeah, Yeah, so it's very different in that way. And I think it's also different in an even more fundamental way, and that is that this is the only translation project in the book where there's no gift of translation. And this is the point that uh, Don Bradley and I make, is that if you look really closely at this episode and the new evidence that Don and I have found, mostly Don, it appears that this is a purely secular effort at translation. All the other projects involve the gift of translation. And this book, Producing Ancient Scripture, in many chapters, explores how it's a combination of natural and supernatural translation. But here in this final chapter on the Kinderhook Plates, there's no gift of translation. It appears to be a purely secular effort. So that's really interesting and almost kind of an odd way to end the book, but it might be pointing to, you know, kind of a trajectory where at the very beginning, right, with the Anthem episode, you have the ordinary idea of language-to-language normal translation, right? And then, wham, that gets flipped completely upside down with this massive text of the Book of Mormon being translated by the gift and power of God. But then, later, with the JST, there seems to be much more human reason being mixed in with uh, with Revelation. And then, with the with Joseph Smith's Hebrew study and Egyptian language study and Hebrew study, again, more kind of natural, naturalistic, ordinary translation coming into play. And then at the very end with the Kinnerick plates, Joseph Smith is apparently making a purely secular attempt to translate in the presence of both Mormons and non-Mormons. It's really kind of a strange episode, but in a way, at the end of the book, I think maybe it's, you know, pointing us to this model where Joseph Smith believes that you're supposed to bring your best mental efforts to translation. It's interesting also that the mistranslation comes as his last translation project. 
I don't know if that's meaningful or not. We'll probably never know. Well, thank you, Mark, for running through this roster. It really was a dream team of scholars. I can't imagine who you left off the list. And to chapter authors, you have my sincere apology if we have slaughtered your arguments. (laughs) But uh, you can always contact me, and I would be glad to do an interview with you. And you can call me, and I'd be happy to apologize. There you go. Thanks, Mark. Thanks for having me. Be sure to check out LDSperspectives.com to subscribe, catch up on past episodes, download transcripts, and find show notes. LDS Perspectives podcast is not affiliated with The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. The opinions expressed represent the views of the guests or the podcasters alone. While the ideas presented may vary from traditional understandings or teachings, they in no way reflect criticism of LDS church leaders, policies, or practices.